0: Fabulous. The other thing I want uh, to make sure folks know is today was the last day we're going to do it for this little run. We've set out our resource table again today. Over the years, Lake Forest Davidson has created this little vast array of resources, some little books, and also the Lake Forest Davidson CD. And so periodically we put out the little resource table. We're doing it right now because the blue book is the new book, and so I know many of you have these resources on your mantle at home and so you want to have the full collection you go get the blue book many of you actually built the mantle simply so you could put these on it so that's very encouraging but the little blue book is the new book you can add that to your uh, to your collection these are for you or for people you know you could pass along to as you're trying to grow in your faith or you're trying to help them explore the christian faith or anything like that they are free you can take them for free if you want to help us replenish them you could uh cover the cost five bucks for a book, 10 bucks for a CD. But again, they are free. So if you're struggling to make ends meet or you don't have the money or whatever and you just need to pass along, that's great. That's what they're there for, all right? Brilliant. Whether you're cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there is room for you here at Lake Forest. This is a safe place for you to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. The round reminds us we're all active participants as we stay on this journey together. We're all here to receive something this morning. We also all have something to give. So, as we soak in the grace and truth of God's love, we can also uh, spread God's love by serving other people. Now, a few years back, I met a college student at Summit, uh, and the reason that we did this is that she was ready to become a Christian. So we talked about all that, and I tried to give her a lot of off-ramps and all that kind of thing, but she was ready to become a Christian, and so we we prayed together as she committed her life to following Jesus. It was a very beautiful thing. And then she got up and walked to class. And I wonder what happened during that walk. I mean, in my head, it always went something like this. Okay, now what? What? Now, you may have had that experience if you uh, are a Christian, or maybe in the future you'll become a Christian. It's so exciting, and and then you kind of look up and you say, okay, now what? Because you thought you were crossing over the finish line, and then what you realize is, no, you just crossed over the starting line. You did cross over a line, but it was the starting line. Now what? Well, the good thing is Jesus' original disciples had to do this same thing. Like, Jesus is raised from the dead, the resurrection has happened, the world has changed, Now what? Now what do we do? So we're going to look for the next few weeks at some of the now what's that the original disciples did in hopes that it will encourage us as we or people we know and love face the okay, well now what question. So last week we celebrated Easter. That the resurrection happened, the resurrection of Jesus, that the God who created the universe wrapped himself in human flesh, moved into our neighborhood as Jesus, that he lived a perfect life, that he died an unjust death, but that he did so on purpose, that he willingly withstood God's anger so that we might receive God's mercy. And the linchpin in all this is the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus is not dead, he is risen. He is risen indeed. God raised Jesus from the dead as a sign of vindication, as a confirmation that His sacrifice on our behalf was acceptable and accepted. So the forgiveness that Jesus offers His followers is real. The purpose that He offers His followers is real. The abundant and the everlasting life that He offers His followers is real is real if you're a christian or if you ever become a christian you don't follow a philosophy you don't follow an idea you don't even follow an ideal you follow a person jesus christ who is alive and active in the world today when jesus first disciples became aware of the resurrection when they first learned about it they knew that if it was true it would change their lives If it was true, the entire world had changed. And so, interestingly, after the resurrection, one of the first things that many of Jesus' followers did was they set out to discover the truth of the resurrection. So now what? Well, one thing that they did is they set out to discover the truth of the resurrection. They didn't all just start jumping up and down immediately like, yippee, the resurrection. Many of them had to go and discover it for themselves. I think we can learn something from them on this. Because that it's good to investigate if the resurrection is for real. It's good to encourage spiritually curious people to discover, is the resurrection of Jesus for real? I mean, I can remember a time in my life, I was a Christian, I was committed to Jesus, but, but I was struggling with, should I really let him transform my life? Should I really l- let him start to mess with some stuff? One of these periods where I had more doubt than faith and was just trying to hold it all together and that kind of thing. And so what I decided to do was to set out and discover if the resurrection was for real. Because if it was, then I was all in. That would mean that Jesus was alive, that he had transformed the world, that he had transformed our relationship with God, and so I would let him transform my life. I'd let him start moving some stuff around, breaking down some walls, building some new ones. So this is my introductory point. The whole trust your life into Jesus' hands because he rose from the dead is a crazy thing to base your life on it is. I'll just start there. I'll just start by admitting that. So now after this service, when you go to lunch at the Denny's, you can turn to the Methodist at the table beside you and say, guess what we learned at church today? The pastor said, I know how often I get invoked in people's lives, the pastor said that the bedrock of the Christian faith is crazy. And it is. And over the years, I have also learned that the bedrock on which any person will build their life is crazy. They're all crazy. So, for instance, in like a naturalistic view of the world, if there is no God, and so you have to explain the entire world without God, I would have to believe that given enough time, utter nothingness made something. And to me, that seems crazy. That just seems crazy. And then at some point along the way, life just sprang into existence. One story goes when when lightning struck a mud puddle. All right. So I just imagine sitting outside one night, my family, my wife, my daughter. The sun is setting over on this side. So you can start to see the stars filling in this part of the sky. We're listening to birds singing their babies to sleep. And I take this whole scene in, and I can, all I can think is, I am so glad that lightning struck that mud puddle. That's crazy. Like, where would a sense of beauty come from in that world? Like, what? there would be no necessary Darwinian mechanism by which the night sky would be beautiful. So, I'm not trying to be mean to anybody here. I'm trying to be mean to everybody here, and, and it's to say, they're all crazy, Everything on which you can base your life is crazy. They all require a leap of faith. They all do. And my point is, I've become convinced following Jesus is the most sane of all the crazy options out there. The resurrection of Jesus is a crazy thing to believe. And I believe it. I think it's true. I think that God came to earth where he lived, where he died, where he resurrected. I think that Jesus is alive and active in the world today, that he's transforming my life and that he's transforming the world. And I find the disciple Thomas to be especially helpful on this topic. Connor read earlier the account of Jesus and Thomas after the resurrection. This is John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, Was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, I can relate to Thomas on this. Maybe you can too. Thomas is not going to play the fool. Thomas understands how life-altering the resurrection would really be. If it's for real, the world is different. Then Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus changed the world. Jesus can change my life. So Thomas is not going to take it at face value. Thomas wants to see some proof. Verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side, stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. So this encounter reminds me of uh, something that happened in our church uh, a few years back. Uh, A person Approached one of our elders uh, with a question that was really burning in his mind, and the question was, How much money do I make? Now, I don't know why this was uh, important to him. Perhaps he had had some concerns, had driven by my mansion here in Davidson, on 1,900 square feet of it, and had really, or uh, more likely, he wanted to personally give me a bonus and was trying to figure out how many zeros to put on the check. You know, I'm not. I'm not sure exactly what the concern was, but this was a real concern. And so, the uh, elder's response was something like, you know, I really don't know, but if it matters this much to you, I can find out. At which point the person said, oh, you can? But never mind. So, what was the real issue? The real issue is does the church have anything to hide? I want to make sure the church doesn't have anything to hide. I see something similar in the Jesus-Thomas encounter. Because you remember Thomas says, I'm not going to believe in the resurrection unless I see Jesus' hands. In fact, I need to put my finger through the hole in Jesus' hand before I'll believe in the resurrection. And then Jesus shows up and says, Thomas, here are my hands. Thomas, touch my hands. But an interesting little detail is that the Bible never says that Thomas touches Jesus' hands. Now, maybe he did, and John just forgot to include it, or maybe Thomas simply needed to know there was nothing to hide. That he was not being asked to accept the resurrection on blind faith. That there was actual, credible evidence that as crazy as the resurrection is, it is in fact a fact. So when the evidence was staring Thomas in the face, he responded that Jesus was his Lord and his God. Lord means the person in charge of my life. Lord means king. In that era, it was common to say that the emperor was Lord right? The emperor was in charge. But Thomas doesn't say that. Thomas says that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the one in charge of my life. So that if you or I were able to ever say Jesus is Lord, we are saying Jesus is in charge of my life. So I think there is good evidence, as Thomas saw, that the resurrection is true, and I find it in the pages of the Scripture. It has convinced me to say, as Thomas did, Jesus, you are my God and my Lord. So with the time we have left, would you, would you be all right if I walked through a couple of these uh, instances, these evidences I see? Yes? Okay, good. If you said no, I would have ended this sermon. Like, I'm real pliable. Excellent. So what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to do like, I'm not going to point out verses in the Bible that say Jesus rose from the dead. What I'm going to do is look at the Bible like from the side, a different perspective, and say these are details in the Bible that seem to reinforce the reliability of the resurrection. All right? So discovering the truth of the resurrection, number one, number one, number, 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 number one. The portrayal of the original disciples. The portrayal of the original disciples. Acts chapter 4 says this, When they, the crowd, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So in the Bible, the portrayal of Jesus' disciples can be summed up this way. Before the resurrection, they are bumbling idiots. After the resurrection, God uses them to launch the movement that changed the world. And the Bible's explanation for why that happened is fairly simple. The resurrection of Jesus changed everything. That through the resurrection, the disciples realized Jesus was their God and their Lord. They were inspired to go out and tell everyone about Jesus, that the resurrected Jesus changed their lives. So I decided to think about it differently. Let's suppose that's not what really happened. Let's suppose that these folks had spent three years of their life and given up their professions to kind of follow this itinerant preacher named Jesus. And he most likely said that he would resurrect from the dead, and then the Roman government killed him, and he did not resurrect. He stayed dead. The disciples look at each other, and they say, we have a problem. We're going to look dumb unless we fake the resurrection. So they start acting like the resurrection is true, even though they know it isn't. Some of them actually died gruesome deaths defending this thing they knew wasn't true. Then they sat down and started to write out some books and letters uh, that later became the Bible to try to give the impression of their version of the events of what they wanted people to think, right? Kind of alternative facts, as we might say. So they write all these things down. Now, at some point, you just say, this seems like a lot of work compared to just admitting you were wrong and going back to your life as you knew it. But this is my point. If the original disciples made the whole thing up, they have succeeded wildly. They managed to launch the movement throughout all of human history least constrained by culture and geography. All enduring movements, except one, which is Christianity, all enduring movements, including religions and secularism, are pretty constrained by certain cultures and certain geographies. Christianity being the lone exception. So if the resurrection is a hoax, the original disciples were cunning enough to mastermind the most dynamic movement of people in human history out of a lie. At the same time, they allowed themselves to be portrayed as bumbling idiots, and they went out of their way to speak well of Jesus, who is the guy who led them astray in the first place. So that little thing I just outlined masterminds who started the most dynamic movement of people throughout all human history while allowing themselves to be portrayed as bumbling fools who spoke well of jesus the guy who made them give up their lives for something that turned out to not happen that would require the disciples to have a personality that i have never met in any person ever I've known people who could mastermind movements to take over the world and they were very careful how they were portrayed. And they did not let other people be portrayed or exalted above them. Think about the people in our world today. I've also known bumbling fools who had no shot of taking over the world. Not at this church, of course, but, you know, other places. So, the the more I thought about this, the more it just seemed to me that the Bible's face value explanation of what happened actually made more sense than the conspiracy theories I could cook up. The disciples were changed because they had encountered the resurrected Jesus. Okay, number two. This is my favorite one. Women find the empty tomb. Women find the empty tomb. Again, If we take Jesus' resurrection to be a hoax that was part of this elaborate cover-up by the original disciples, we have to view the Bible a little bit differently. The Bible is trying to be this clever cover-up that obscures the truth. So when we think about the Bible through that lens, there is one very odd detail, which is that in every biblical account, it is women who find the empty tomb. Now, it's odd enough that there are multiple biblical accounts of the resurrection, because, because again, if you're, trying to, uh, if you're trying to orchestrate, kind of get, get out a, a, a hoax, a lie, you, you keep things really narrow. You, you would not have four stories of Jesus' life. You would put that down to one story of Jesus' life to kind of have the master definitive copy, it seems to me. But in the different accounts of the life of Jesus, it is always women who find the empty tomb the Roman intellectual Celsus, he lived right after Jesus, Celsus loved to make fun of Christians. This is one of his comments. He wrote, Christians desire and are able to win over only the silly and the stupid and women and children. Isn't that heartwarming? Celsus would be like, in our day, it would be like someone who, um, he he would have been the, the most followed, say, blogger. He would write these, insightful and, and slightly barbed commentaries of what was going on, and then everybody would pick it up because they just loved insightful, barbed commentary. That's kind of what Kelsus did. And he gives us an insight into the way that people of that era thought about women. That by and large, within the Roman Empire, it was uh, you could believe women. This is how the people thought. You could believe women as much as you would believe a fool an idiot, or a child, that women would be as gullible as fools, idiots, and children. So why in the world, if you're the disciples, these geniuses perpetrating the most successful hoax in all of human history, why in the world would you have the reliability, the trustworthiness of the resurrection depend upon the testimony of women? As I thought about it, It seemed to me the reason the Bible said women found the empty tomb is because that's actually what happened, that these women who followed Jesus were the first to discover the truth of the resurrection, and then that through the resurrection of Jesus, God was actually undoing the effects of human sinfulness, that God was lifting up an entire group of people who had been pushed low throughout much of history and did so by making them the first messengers that He is risen that the world has changed. As crazy as that sounded, it was far more sane than any other thing I could think of. And yet again, the resurrection was the sanest of all the crazy options. Okay, number three, Paul's transformation. Paul's transformation. Paul is the gentleman who wrote most of what we call the New Testament, and we learn from Paul's own writings that Paul was being fast-tracked into the anti-Christian crusade of his time. He was actually first known for how he silenced people who were wanting to say that Jesus was resurrected. Then he became one of the most influential Christians. So what happened to Paul? I mean, the, the modern example would be, let's say that you have a kid whose lifelong dream is to play basketball for UNC. UNC has the jerseys, has the memorabilia, has the posters, and then one day UNC offers her a full scholarship to play basketball. And she says, you know what? No, thank you. I've decided to walk on at Davidson. (laughs) Yes, we would say. Now, if you read a story like that in the paper, what would your initial reaction be? Do people read papers anymore? this is a historical example now I'm offering. Let's say you heard about it around town. You heard about this story around town. What would you say? You would say something like, wow, something must have changed. I wonder what changed. That's what people were saying about Paul during his era. He went from being a famous persecutor of Christians to a Christian. So when you hear about that, you say, well, what happened? Some big change must have happened in that person's life. And then Paul, in his own writings, wrote this 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So clearly, something big changed for Paul. And then he writes this bold statement that if Jesus, without Jesus' resurrection, there's no reason to be a Christian. So again, I'm asking myself, what's the reasonable explanation for this, for this unforeseen life change in this man's life, and then this bold statement that without the resurrection, there's no reason to be a Christian? The Bible's explanation for that is that Paul encountered the resurrected Jesus. And as crazy as that sounds, it yet again seemed to be the most reasonable of the crazy options. And then number four, number four, number four, number, 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 number. And finally, four, life change in our time. Life change in our time. I could say this of myself. I could say this of many of you here in our congregation. I could say this of many friends that I've had. Faith in Jesus Christ changes people it changes people. It has changed me. It is changing me. And not in the way that an idea changes people or an ideal changes people or a philosophy changes people, but in the way that a relationship changes people. You think about how the relationships in your life with other people, the way that they change you and shape you, you're not the same person you were before you had those relationships. Same thing I see in the lives of people who live by faith in Jesus. The Bible's explanation of this is that life change, that the change, life change you and I see, is because we are not encountering an idea or a philosophy in Jesus. When we commit ourselves to Jesus, we are entering into a relationship A relationship with someone who is not dead, who is risen, who is risen indeed, who is alive and active in the world and wants to be active in your life. He wants to transform you. He wants to transform me, just as He transformed His original disciples, just as He transformed Paul. And He wants to give you a mission, just like He gave to the women at the tomb. He wants to give you a mission of telling people that there is hope. Whatever you are going through today, there is hope there is boundless hope. Come with me and encounter the resurrected Jesus. Come and say, as Thomas did, that Jesus, you are my God and my Lord. You are the one who's in control of my life, in charge of my life. So in the end, I sort of came to the conclusion... Now again, this, I, I'm trying to distill this so that it's a sermon. This, was, this happened over years. But at the, at, towards the tail end of it, came to the conclusion the Bible has nothing to hide. The Bible is not trying to hide anything. The, what the Bible actually says is far more interesting than all the conspiracy theories about it. And much like Jesus said to Thomas here are my hands, look at my hands, the Bible is saying, here's what happened. It's crazy and it's true. And so John chapter 20 concludes by saying, but these, these biblical accounts are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That's what Jesus offers us. Jesus offers us life. He rose from death into life so that you and I could live abundant lives on this earth and then into the life everlasting. Now, you don't have to turn your brain off to follow Jesus because Jesus is trying to lead you into life, a life that is good, a life that is beautiful, and ultimately a life that is rooted in what is true. So you don't have to turn your brain off to follow Jesus. Let me wrap up with this question. Do you believe that the resurrection is true? What difference does it make in your life? Do you believe that the resurrection is true? What difference does it make in your life? Now, if you're at a place today where you would say your initial answer, do you believe the resurrection is true? No, I don't. I would say you're in good company. Because most of Jesus' earliest disciples, that would have been their first answer too. And then what they did was they set out to explore, to investigate, to see for themselves, is the resurrection for real? And when they decided that it was... It changed their lives. So I told you earlier about meeting the student at uh, Summit and her committing herself to Jesus, becoming a Christian. This is the email she sent me before we had that meeting. This is the email before. I've been trying to figure things out for a while now. On one hand, I am innately skeptical and resistant to any kind of trust slash faith. On the other hand, my reasoning and the evidence I'm finding strongly suggest that the person of Jesus really did live, die, and resurrect. I have other unresolved doubts, but the overall truth of Christianity seems to depend on this. This tension feels unshakable. No matter how much I intellectually embrace this truth, I am left unchanged. So the discussion that we had was that it's really not about winning an argument. It's really not even about settling an argument. It's about getting to the place where both your heart and your mind are eager to say, Jesus, you are my God and my Lord. And it's a beautiful thing to see when it happens. It's a beautiful thing in your life. It's a beautiful thing in the life of one more person who trusts you to be their spiritual guide. The disciples did a lot of other now what's in the early days after Jesus' resurrection. We'll look at a few more in the weeks ahead. But I just think it's fascinating. And sometimes something, at least I, overlook. One of the very first things the original disciples did after the resurrection They set out to determine for themselves if the resurrection was for real. And once they were convinced it was, it changed their lives. Let's pray together. In this moment, let me give you a chance to pray, a chance to talk with God about whatever it is He's stirring in your heart or in your mind. It's so fascinating that often we think of Thomas as the doubter. We think of Thomas as the one who had all the questions. And yet, from the passage we studied today, he's also remembered as the one who spoke in faith and said, my Lord and my God. There is room... For doubters to be people of faith, there is room for Thomases to kneel before God's throne and to be God's children. With whatever God is stirring in your heart or mind, just talk to God. Lord, I thank you for those who just have a simple faith. I don't mean that in any negative way. I mean it in the best way possible. Just a simple faith. And these questions don't even register. I thank you for those in our church and, and throughout the world who, whose faith is, is just a beautiful thing to see. And upon hearing of who you were, they were immediately drawn to you and have never looked back or questioned it. Lord, I also thank you for those in our church family and throughout the world who struggle with these questions, who who need to know, who who often feel like they have more uh, doubt than faith, Thank you that there's room in your family for all kinds of people. So, Lord, today many of us may just need to make Thomas's words our words and say that, Jesus, you are my God and my Lord. Our heart says that, our mind says that. You are our God and our Lord. We offer this prayer in the name of Jesus, amen.